0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 12, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The will to punish can be strong, especially when it's clear that someone is harming an innocent person. But when we believe the perp received a mere slap on the wrist, we ought to understand what that actually looks like. And we should also understand that harsh penalties for wealthier elites can mean less privileged people will face those same punishments in far higher numbers and without any fanfare. John Pfaff is a professor of law at Fordham Law and author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. I want to start by saying I am an unfortunate Twitter person, um, which is I don't think anyone should take pride in being on Twitter, uh, but I do it in part because there's just enough news among the uh, angry vitriol to uh, make it worth my while, or at least that's what I tell myself. Um, And so among the people on Twitter, I find you to be an essential follow because there are these cases where uh, the Twitter mob with their virtual pitchforks are ready to come after somebody. uh, And then you pop in and say, now, hold on a second. Uh, Maybe the punishment that you think is perfectly appropriate for this person who's committed this. Uh, crime or has behaved in an inappropriate way. You don't want that to be used on uh, your friends uh, down the road. So, uh, very recently there was this case of Amy Cooper, who was threatening a man in Central Park, Christian Cooper, uh, and her charges have now gone away. And this has angered some people in a sort of a familiar way uh, online. So if you wouldn't mind, w- walk us through what we ought to understand about that case and cases like it.
1: Yeah. So so the, the basic story in, in the Cooper case, you have Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, completely unrelated people. Uh, Amy Cooper is a white woman. Christian Cooper is a black man. Amy Cooper is walking her dog through Central Park. Christian Cooper is birdwatching. Um, and for reasons that I honestly have, have have now since forgotten, Amy Cooper gets very, very angry. She clearly feels threatened in some way by by Christian Cooper, who poses no threat at all. Um, and caught on film, she basically says, "I'm going to call the cops on you to say that you're threatening me if you don't." I think I think she wanted him to leash his dog, and so she threatens like, "If you don't leash your dog, I'm going to call the cops and say you're, you're threatening me." Uh, but but in, in a strangely cold kind of way, like you, it seems like it's less panic. And more like she understands exactly what she's doing. That's a white woman calling the cops on a black man, that this is this is a threat beyond like I'll get the police involved. And like she she's weaponizing the policeness of it. And she does call the police and gets busted for making a false report because it all got caught on film. Um and so she gets charged with this misdemeanor for for her her false call. And just the other day, her charges got dropped. And they got dropped after she completed five sessions in a, a racial sensitivity training course. And, and obviously, this led to tremendous outrage online. People saying, oh, this is very much whiteness at work. This wouldn't happen anywhere else. Um, and this is, this is wrong and, and unacceptable. And putting aside for, for a moment whether or not what she went through was sufficient, right, which it might not have been. Um, and, you know, someone who does racial training sensitivity classes said, like, her behavior suggests she was not someone who needed this. She wasn't an unaware, clueless person making racial mistakes, she fully understood the racial game she was playing and racial sensitivity is not the right thing for her. And that might be true. We come back to that. But it was a dismissal that got everybody outraged, right? This is nothing. This is a slap on the wrist. Like this is she's she has not been punished for this. And this is and and frame this, this is somehow different and unique. Um, but it's not. This is exactly how misdemeanor court in New York City functions. Tens, about hundreds of thousands of cases every year are disposed this way. And the general procedure this is called, and her case might have been structurally different, but basically the same, is this thing, it's called an ACD, adjournment in contemplation of dismissal. And the way it basically works is someone gets hauled into misdemeanor court, and misdemeanor laws are, are the really open-ended, broad, hard-to-define kind of, if the cop kind of feels like you did something, they can kind of bust you for some sort of misdemeanor. Um, And they bring you into court, and the DAs lay out the following deal. We're going to adjourn the case for a while. We're going to suspend this case. It's not going to go away. It's going to be an open case on your record, in your background checks, publicly discoverable. We're going to keep it open for some period of time. And either during that period of time, you need to do nothing wrong, or maybe during that period of time, you need to do some affirmative thing, like take an anger management course or a racial sensitivity course. And if... If while we are contemplating your behavior, if you do what we want you to do, we will dismiss the charges. Okay, this is exactly how misdemeanor court functions. It's, it's, it's There's this great book called Misdemeanor Land, by far the worst Disney ride out there um, by Ilsa um, Kohler-Hausman, which is this really in-depth look at at New York City's misdemeanor court. And the argument she makes is that this is exactly what misdemeanor court is designed to do. They haul you in, and then they suspend this case over your head, and then they track you. Right. And maybe if you fail your first set of things, they don't necessarily haul you up to Rikers right away. Right now, your German goes from six months to a year. And we add two or three more conditions you have to do. And it kind of it kind of gives the DAs this ability to kind of track and monitor. And if you're doing good, they let you off. If you're not doing good, they, they keep extending these ACDs to keep oversight over you. And it's kind of a way of, sort of this informal surveillance system that misdemeanor court allows them to run. And that's that's basically exactly what Cooper went through. But this is not a slap on the wrist right maybe for someone like cooper who probably has resources and 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 other outside options to her maybe less of a punishment but if you're a a poor person going through an acd it is real right you can't get a loan you can't rent an apartment every job you apply for on your background check you have an open pending misdemeanor case in new york city and you know does the average employer understand what how arbitrary a uh, resisting arrest charge can be how arbitrary a public nuisance charge can be disorderly conduct like that's something the cops arrest you for disorderly conduct that could mean you played your music too loud when the cop car rolled by right but but it means you can't get a job it means you can't um you you can't get a loan um on the felony side not the misdemeanor side there's there's a case in in emily Bazelon's new book charged about a kid who goes through a gun court same idea we hold the gun charge over your head you do these things, we drop the gun charge. Over the course of the two years that he was undergoing that oversight, I think he had 150 court appearances, right? Where he shows up, checks with the judge, judge signs off, he goes home. Maybe spending eight hours in court, you know, if you show up at 9 a.m., your case is called at 4, you're there the whole day. You know, that's that's real, right? That's a huge chunk of his life that he served six hours at a time sitting, you know, in a Brooklyn courthouse. And, and so my concern with this this Amy Cooper thing is that I understand the anger this case produces. I truly do. But the frame in ACD as nothing ignores the way it's truly impactful on the people who who go through it.
0: And to leave aside entirely the fact that she's famous in a bad way.
1: Right. She already lost her job. Right, she, she 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 toxic in her her in her previous career. She's been fired. Right, these these are also real costs. She's, her name is immediately searchable. Right? I'm sure Amy Cooper will be, will be the first thing you find when you Google her name from now on. For every employer for the rest of time is is this right? There are there are there are some real other costs that happen. Um, and I think the problem we have is our imagination is so imagination wrong word. Our vision is so blinkered, that we can't imagine anything that is accountable that isn't brutal.
0: So to what extent is this uh, this kind of attitude that, that average people might have when seeing a situation like this, how much of that is attributable to the fact that there are large groups of people who never have any significant interaction with the criminal justice system as a defendant?
1: Right. I, I think it plays a, a huge role, um, and I think it plays a huge role in in incredibly complicated isn't is the right word, but in sort of not always immediately obvious ways, right? It's not just that that there's a large swath of people who don't have contact. There's a large swath of people who don't have contact, and they tend to have an outsized voice in choosing like who the prosecutors are, right? Less true in New York City, uh, but in. Oh, oh, Pretty much everywhere in the country, right? The prosecutor is elected by a county electorate. Um, You know, in New York City, we're kind of weird in that you know Brooklyn is a county, New York City, Manhattan is a county, right? But in most cities, the county, the city, is only part of a bigger county, right? And and so those suburban voters who are part of the county but not part of the city tend to vote more, um, tend to have a bigger political voice, and so the people who choose the prosecutors tend to be those who are least impacted by that prosecutor's behavior, Um, and it's not telling that almost all of our major progressive prosecutors in the United States have all been elected in counties where the county and the city are the same thing. Philadelphia doesn't have ring suburbs in Philadelphia County. Um, Portland is roughly the same way. Chicago, Cook County, but more people, but the voting is like two to one in favor of Chicago. I know Boston, Boston makes up like three-fourths of Suffolk County, right? It's, it's in those places where the, where the urban voters have a much louder voice that progressives win um, because you have this, also you have this big suburban, unaffected cohort that likes the harshness and never feels that that impact.
0: Uh, a point that Clark Neely uh, here at the Cato Institute has made to me and has since just sort of bounced around in my head is that uh, there's this other issue that because we have so few criminal trials, uh, because we, uh, we, we as individuals, as citizens, as voters, that we don't uh, engage with the criminal justice process as jurors that that also sort of blinds us in a way uh, to how justice is actually carried out, that, that, that there are so few uh, opportunities or demands by the systems that we vote for and support. Uh, we, don't, we don't have any interaction with that in such a way that we might actually draw a different conclusion about how things are conducted uh, if we had to do so. What do you think of that idea?
1: I think there's a lot to plea bargaining and a lot of issues with plea bargaining and, and they they it, it makes things hard to parse in lots of different ways. I'm not so sure jury participation would have that big of an impact. You know, at least in New York State, you know, once you get called for jury trial, whether you're getting paneled or not, you're off for I think eight years. Right. So, you know, if, if you if you get called for your first jury trial at twenty one, you're gonna serve on at most five juries over the course of your entire life right and so i i don't think you know maybe if each of us had had that one experience it, it could make a difference right as opposed to start having having none um but i feel like i think it's less about the jury experience and more about the profound geographic concentration of of the impact of both crimes and and enforcement right you know there's there have been several studies since replicated in more sophisticated ways that, that back this up, so there's a lot of evidence behind this, or that, that crime is incredibly concentrated. Not just in the idea of, like there are good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods, right? It's like within a given so-called bad neighborhood, or There are good corners and bad corners, um, and there are some studies that have shown that like you know half of all crime, half of all reported crime, and half of all arrests take place on like about 10 percent of all city blocks. Um, right. And so it's, it's densely concentrated. Um, and given our history of redlining and exclusion, right. Tends to be densely concentrated in in black neighborhoods and brown Hispanic neighborhoods where there are almost no white people at all. Right. Um, and, and so there's entire communities that that have been able to sort of wall themselves off from experiencing it. And I think if you lived on a block where you saw the cops roll up and harass the high school kids walking home, right. I think that would be a far more impactful, changed in you know, serving on a jury once every every eight years. It's that it's daily lived experience of what sort of that low-level, incessant harassment is like that, that I think would matter more.
0: How do we give uh, the average person a better idea about how criminal justice is carried out, if it's so concentrated and we'd all like to just go about our lives and trust that Police are doing their jobs and prosecutors are doing their jobs and the criminal justice system is humming along. Well, how do we give people a sense that there's something profoundly wrong with how we uh, execute justice in America?
1: I, I think I've reached I, I increasingly find myself in the position of saying that that we can't uh, and that the solution is not to try to convince white suburbanites that this system is broken. The, the trick is to make sure that white suburbanites have no voice in how it is right. Right. And so, you know, I, I want I want to see prosecutors, if we have to elect them, I want them to be elected by the city, not by the county. Carve off suburban Kakani and just let Chicago vote. Carve off suburban Houston, just let Houston vote. Uh and and so, you know, the more the more and the more we can devolve things, even then from the from the you know city to the neighborhood right give give local precinct commanders much more voice so they have to respond to those people you know their their constituents not sort of what one police plaza wants them to do uh, because even one police plaza is gonna be a bit more responsive to what you know safe upper west side new yorkers want because they're the ones contributing to the mayoring and winning the elections um it's and so i've increasingly become you know much more of a as local as possible person because um, I, I don't think we're going to be able to, in, in any reasonable period of time, bring rural and suburban white voters around to really understanding
0: what is what is going on. OK, so you're suggesting that uh, individual uh, law enforcement and prosecutors are a part of law enforcement, um, making them more accountable to people who are very close to them.
1: Right. Exactly. The more the more we devolve things for criminal justice, I think, I think with, with I mean, obviously, they're they're there are complications here, right? Like, you know, so probably the single biggest ongoing decarceration success in the United States right now is California, right? You know, up until about two or three years ago, fully half of the nation's prison decline was just the state of California alone. Uh, And the, and what California did that no other state has done um, is they tackled this thing that I call the, the prosecutorial moral hazard problem. So our system is not a system. It's this weird, Mishmash of a thousand different jurisdictions overlapping in in ill conceived ways have kind of haphazardly evolved over time. You know, if there, if there's one phrase that I never like hearing. You know, people say the system does what it's designed to do. It wasn't designed to do anything because no one would design this, right? It, we might be content with it, it's, it's. I think it's very true that now, seeing how it's broken, lots of people are okay with the brokenness that emerges. But this wasn't designed. And, and one of the more Subtle but powerful defects running through it. So, prosecutors are elected by the county and they're funded by the county. They're paid for by the county. They're county officials. Prisons are state institutions. They're run for, managed, and paid for by the state. So, if you're a prosecutor and you convict someone and you send them to prison, that cost doesn't cost you anything. The cost of incarceration doesn't come out of the prosecutor's budget. And in fact, making things worse, jail and probation where we send people convicted of misdemeanors, lower level things, those are county expenses, right? So if the a, is if a, if, if a facing an assault charge, you can charge it as a misdemeanor simple assault or a felony aggravated assault. It's actually both politically safer and financially cheaper for him to charge the felony assault to send the person to prison, which is far more destructive because it gets it off his financial books and onto the state's books. It's this weird, boring, no one wants to talk about intergovernmental budgetary transfers and party, except for me um, and the census and other really boring stuff that, that matters what California did is said look for this whole broad category of offenses you can still charge them with a felony but you got to house them in the county jail charge a felony you pick up the fee right and that caused the counties to suddenly say whoa like uh, that's that uh, do we really want to do this and and prison populations dropping it, it if you get into the weeds, it gets really mind numbingly complicated, but that's that's the basic story. But what's interesting is in that list of offenses California put, they did not include serious violent crimes, right? So murders, aggravated assaults, rapes those still go to the state prison on the state cost. And maybe that's okay, right? Because once you get outside of Los Angeles and maybe San Francisco, Right, there's probably going to be a pretty high correlation between violent crime and county-level poverty. Right, do you want to force really poor counties to have to decide: do we fund our schools or do we put the murderers in prison? Right, that's that's a tough choice. Right, and so we you know, we don't want to say localize everything. Right, we we want to take into account that poor communities have poor schools and high crime, and maybe we want to help them with both. Right, but the more we can get that that, that day-to-day decision making house at the localist level, I think, the better, because I, I think it's too hard to you know, bring sort of the, 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 the contented vote along.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the famous phrase is, in economics, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Right. And uh, in criminal justice, it, it seems that uh, if what you're saying is true, then these trade-offs uh, aren't being made at the most appropriate level.
1: Exactly. They're being made by the people who feel all the benefits of, of being tough, but bearing none of the costs. You know, it's not their family and friends.
0: So I, I I assume you've thought about this more deeply than I have. Uh, what does that look like in practice? I mean, is California a model for for doing this? And if, if states were very interested in assigning costs uh, or taking costs, uh, spending from prosecutors' budgets rather than have it be this separate entity that only deals with uh, people who have been convicted after they've been convicted, Um, what does that look like? Because I I can imagine a prosecutor uh, or a prosecutor's office, a DA, saying to themselves, boy, and this is is my idealized vision of what what it would look like, is them saying, well, look, we've got these 10 criminals, a couple of these guys aren't so bad. Um, so in order to win the favor of the public, we'll make sure that these people who've committed the worst crimes are the ones who get punished the most and we'll try to find a way to let these other guys back into society. How, I mean, that's the idealized version, at least in my mind.
1: Yeah. So the, the challenge we have, so this is, this is oftentimes also the argument you see against plea bargaining. Right, if we abolish plea bargaining, when you have like the three drug cases and the two murders, the DAs would have to drop the drug cases because they would only have time for the two murders. Maybe, right? So, so here, here's where I get concerned. If you look at sort of staffing within DA offices, it kind of has a U-shaped curve to it. A lot of really young people, a slightly bigger cohort of really old, long timers, long termers, and then very few people, much fewer people in the middle, right? Because a lot of assistant district attorneys, especially in the bigger urban offices where most of them tend to work, they're not there out of a deep commitment to criminal justice, right? They're there because they're trying to skip the line in private practice, right? You know, if you leave law school and go into, you know, a big law law firm as a first year associate, right? You're... Bringing coffee to the junior associate, who's bringing coffee to the senior associate, who's taking coffee to the partner, and that partner that you know that that one of those three partners who runs your entire division, he sees he does a trial three times a year, right? Maybe, right? Because you know everything pleads out, and there's this huge sort of internal structure. If you're an assistant district attorney, you graduate from law school, and three months later you're in bail court, right? Setting bail, and six months into you're doing misdemeanor court, and one year in you're conducting your first criminal trial. Right. And so you get all this trial experience and the people go straight to private practice might not. And so in five years, when you leave the ADA's office, you say, look at all this trial experience I have, like I have something these guys didn't. And you kind of jump ahead a bit, right? You take that pay cut for the first five years for the experience later on. So now think back now, think back to this case. Everyone thinks it's great. Three drug cases, one murder case. Obviously you drop the three drug cases for the one murder case, but do you, right? If you're that ADA with a fair amount of independence, those three drug cases are three easy trial wins for you, right? So that when you apply to the big law law firm, you say, look, I got A, B, C. I took him to trial. I did all the discovery. I did this prep work. I gave my oral arguments. I won. The one murder case, you did the one case, and I lost, right? Because the public defender is coming at you hard on the murder case. got right? probably the, the, the top of the public defender sort of hierarchy who's got that case. There's a lot on the line. They, they're they're really aggressive. And now you've got this one, said three two-week trials, you got this one one-month trial that you lost right um and so i actually don't know what plea bargaining will do um and if you think this is some crazy hypothetical um david simon homicide the, the wire um you know he got his start as a as, as the reason why i'll show this at baltimore so he started off as the baltimore son's crime reporter i had an article years ago about one of the former da's who somehow convinced the head of the baltimore police homicide unit that they could not make an arrest until an assistant state's attorney signed off on the arrest warrant. Within a single year of that agreement, the number of arrests for homicide in Baltimore fell by 50%, like 200 to 100. And it wasn't because all of a sudden Baltimore stopped having homicide, right? It's because the ASAs wouldn't sign any warrant where they didn't think they could win the case, right? Because their logic was, look, if we don't sign the warrant, the police department eats it, As an uncleared homicide right if we sign the warrant they get the clearance that's good for their numbers but then we get the loss and that's bad for our our reelection campaign so just don't sign the warrants unless you know you can win and arrests just went away right for homicide right and so i say like you know wouldn't ada choose to like make the murder case go away to take the three drug cases yeah i have no doubt that that could happen right And, and so i i don't know what moving away from things like plea bargaining to forcing people to internalize costs, the actual way that the dynamics of that are incredibly complicated in a way that none of us has any idea how they'd actually play out in, in practice. But there's plenty of reason to be concerned that at the very least, they wouldn't be as good as we hoped it would be.
0: So uh, I'm just spitballing here. Uh, maybe part of it is just prosecutors eat a part of the cost.
1: Right. Um, and I think localization would would help that, right? You know, I, I think if the DA is responsive to the communities that are seeing the drug arrests and the non-homicide cases and are seeing the homicide cases go unprosecuted, right, they will face much greater pressure to drop the easy drug cases and really take on the murder cases. If it's suburbanized just looking at aggregate numbers, not understanding what these numbers mean, they won't. Right. And so I think localization does help this problem in some way um, because the people who are feeling the misincentives are able to respond better.
0: What else concerns you about our criminal justice system? We had last year uh, a whole lot of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, uh, marches. Uh, Some of those became riots. Um, I'm talking to you from just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I lived in Louisville uh, when Breonna Taylor was killed and uh, watched you know, sort of in horror at how the Louisville Metro Police Department behaved, how prosecutors' offices behaved, uh, and, of course, the burning of uh, parts of, of businesses, the people who lost their entire livelihoods amid uh, a, a global pandemic. And now we've, we've seen some data from 2020 that says uh, violent crime has has increased pretty dramatically in a lot of uh, major cities throughout the country. Uh what are your thoughts on on that
1: yeah I, I mean the first thing i'd say is one one underreported, fairly consistent pattern is that most protests didn't turn violent until the police actually showed up right that that one underappreciated aspect of the by many of the, of the protests this summer is that what you really saw were the police riding far more than the protesters riding? I mean, the police were, were, were simply out of control this spring and this summer. I mean, they are firing tear gas canisters at the head of journalists, right? There's actually, a, th- actually had a threat, I think, six different journalists who've been shot at, in the head by the police firing you know, non-lethal weapons at them, right? Um, there is the, the case that just got dismissed in Buffalo, uh, which is where I grew up, um, which to me, it's a, a horrifying video this old man approaching police officers in front of City Hall, one shoves the old man, he falls backwards, hits his head on the ground, and immediately starts bleeding out of his head. That's terrible. The very next moment, if you watch the video, it's the 28th second of the video, one officer leans down to help the man who's old man bleeding from his head, not moving at all. Another officer grabs him by the back and pulls him away, and they march on past this man bleeding out on the ground, right? A lot of this violence arose when the police arrived. Nonviolent protests quickly turned violent because the police came and acted in incredibly violent and aggressive kinds of ways um, because they are fairly confident, rightly so, that they would be able to get away with it right? And, and basically have. right. We frame these things as the protesters became violent and ignore the fact that almost in every case it was the police who precipitated the violence themselves because you know, we have historically viewed the police as sort of this, you know, this neutral purveyor of facts. Right, the police tell us what's going on. Everyone else kind of makes other claims, right? But the police are very much a fundamentally political institution, right? They lo- you know they lobby for the laws that they enforce. They 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 know they lobby for laws that protect them from accountability. They they are political actors, and they're facing more sustained political opposition than they have in recent history, right? And and you and you can sense amongst the police this fear that their their social position is is eroding, um, and they are responding. Remarkably aggressively, right? And, and so, you know, to me, that the, the, what 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 the what the protests really showed me was much more the the, the violence of, of the repression against them, much more than than the protests themselves.
0: Who studied this, in particular, the the evolution, uh, rapid evolution of a march into a protest with with the presence of police?
1: Yeah, so. I don't, I don't have a great idea of who's studying it in a sort of rigorous way. From my, my sense of you know, watching, just watching, I watched far more videos this summer than, than I wanted to expect. Nothing much else to do trapped trapped at home. Um, it's a, they're emotionally draining to watch in, in, in any great concentration. Um, but I think also the thing about criminal justice is that I kind of described it as like a giant sun of failure. If you try to stare at the whole thing at once, you go blind. You sort of pick your one little part and stare at it. So I sort of stare at the DA prison little burning part of, fiascos and don't focus there so much into the policing part of the of, of the mess um but i'm sure there i'm sure there are people doing work now trying to understand sort of you know, the connection between protests and, and 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 policing you know i i'm sure some protests the police are there because they were already turning violent but it oftentimes seemed more often than what certainly far more often than one would expect that it was the arrival of the police themselves and, and their very aggressive, militarized response that then led to, to sort of either either fearful based opposition or, or more aggressive opposition by the protesters because they, they sent this militarized force closing in on them. Um, but my guess, you, you, if you add up sort of the total amount of violence conducted during those protests, that by sort of the excessive unnecessary violence by the police, um, I, I would imagine it's definitely far greater than that by, by the protesters and certainly far greater than what most sort of the job public view of these protests would, would suggest.
0: John Pfaff, among other things, is author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.